0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Ozano, and we are proud to be partners with the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Over the last few weeks, you have heard episodes that have captured learning from the 7th Global Symposium on Health Systems Research in Bogota, with participants on how health systems can be strengthened by community engagement. We also linked with LSTM as they celebrate their 125th year of being leaders in global health, and they really had a strong presence at the conference. They presented sessions that captured and shared community voices, including people from informal settlements, as part of the Arise consortium. We also heard open and transparent discussions about decolonizing health research and how to promote more equitable research partnerships across countries and institutions. LSTM had two satellite sessions, one entitled Actors and Alliances to Transform Health and Wellbeing in Cities, That really brought home the importance of identifying synergies and gaps to support the development of urban health communities of practice. Another session shared experiential learning from health policy and system research learning sites. The interactive panel highlighted different experiences of learning sites on three continents, and they discussed the common challenges they faced, including differential power of the actors involved, and how these can be managed. Other sessions focused on the power and politics of scaling up a health intervention, and they shared lessons from Uganda, Ghana, and Malawi. I myself participated in a live interview with Lynette Koth, who is a researcher from LVCT in Kenya and a long-term partner of the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. We discussed how power manifested in health systems and how this power can be mitigated and negotiated. The audience were also live interviewers in this very engaging session. We also saw PhD students and partner researchers proudly represent the school by being selected as emerging voices. Shireen Chowdhury, Lynette Akoth and Bashira Akter were clearly demonstrating their leadership role in the future of global health. In this episode, we will be sharing some of the conversations that we captured in the halls at the conference, and we end with a summary of some take-home messages that LSTM will be thinking about as they move forward in their aim to develop research that is not just for the benefit of low-resource countries, but led by them. Enjoy the episode. I'm here with Jackie at the Health Systems Research Symposium. I was in your session yesterday where I heard you use something called digital diaries. That intrigued me. Can you tell us,
1: first of all, who you are, where you're from, and then explain a little bit about what is digital diaries? Thank you, Kim, and happy to do this podcast with you. So I'm Jackie Mendoza, and my background is medical anthropology, and the work I've been involved is called Respond. Responsive and Equitable Systems Health Partnership Research on Non-Communicable Diseases. It's based in the Philippines and Malaysia, where we wanted to know what are the barriers and enablers to hypertension care in both of those countries because hypertension control is poor. We, this picks methods design quantitative and qualitative methods so for the qualitative methods where I've mostly worked on. I was working as one of the research associates in the Philippine side. In the creative methods, we did um, in-depth interviews and the digital diaries. In the in-depth interviews, it's the usual uh, one-on-one interviews with selected patients. It was two interviews a year apart. We had a first um, in-depth interview and another in-depth interview after a year. In between that year, that's where we um, employed the digital diaries because we wanted to capture the lived experiences. The team designed this method because... It's recorded as one of the uh, innovative tools to capture lived experiences because definitely you can't get all the lived experiences in just one sitting. The Digital Diaries was helpful, ideally, to capture what happens near real-time as people navigate through their healthcare journey. That's essentially uh, the purpose of the Digital Diaries in the context of our research.
0: Okay, that's great. So, a
1: Digital Diary... Is it using WhatsApp or what? Can you explain the practical elements? Okay, okay. So in previous studies, uh, where diaries as a tool was um, used, they noticed some challenges with it in terms of diaries used as pen and paper written, or it could be in the form of videos or audio using a recorder, where essentially the participants will be provided that, oh, here, this is how you do the diaries, and then after a while, we'll collect it from you. There are certain disadvantages with using it, as noted in other studies, because there's the risk of the participants losing the, essentially the diaries itself. And so one of um, the ways in which we wanted to navigate or circumvent around those disadvantages is to develop a diary wherein it's a digital diary and it's operated through a dedicated platform. We've worked with, uh, with an organization called On Our Radar, where it was specifically designed, the, the Digital diaries was designed to be a method for qualitative methods to capture anything, lived experiences, anything that the participants would want to share with us, the researcher. So it was designed to capture texts, photos, videos, audio, everything. So that's why it's called Digital. Also, since it is a dedicated platform, it has other functions, such as it serves as a, a data storage tool. The dedicated platform... That function where it's easier for the researchers to organize, to systematically organize the entries and make some notes on the the entries that participants will share and sort of conduct preliminary analysis while the participants are sending in their entries. That's the whole concept or idea in terms of the technicality of it. That's why it was deemed to be innovative because it offers other functions that's basically easy in terms of research and analysis side. The tool sounds
0: very impressive as you're describing it. Uh, You know, it sounds innovative. It sounds like it also builds on people's abilities, whether they prefer photographs or writing or videos. The interesting thing in your session, though, is you said it was a great idea, but in practice, it didn't work as well. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So essentially, it was a great idea. It was innovative because participants have basically options on what they wanted to share on how they want their diary entries to be produced. The main thing that we found is that we weren't really getting a lot of in-depth narratives as we've expected. Previous studies, they've done this. They've gotten quite a lot of narratives. But in our case, in hypertension, it wasn't the case. Well, the main thing that we um, think, think is that it's the condition. It's really important to consider in doing diaries because in our study, hypertension among our participants, it's not really something that they think about. It's not a serious condition for them. Therefore, they don't usually think about it unless there are symptoms, unless they have certain health encounters which don't normally happen because most of them it's asymptomatic so in terms of doing the diaries. We think it's the disease itself because it's invisible to them. It's really not something that they would think about and reflect on about. So we think, for instance, in other non-communicable diseases, probably with diabetes, where like, the symptoms is very much visible to the participants and the experience of it is very much affects them on a day-to-day basis. Those patients probably have the ability to really think through the disease and really create reflections about their lived experiences and how they navigate through their care journeys. That's one of the challenges we faced really is we didn't really get a lot of entries from the participants in terms of their lived experiences. I think it's great that
0: you're so honest about that as well because we hear, you know, so many success stories, but it's really important to learn from methods that don't necessarily work. One of the things that was mentioned in your session was if it had been co-designed a little bit more with participants. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah.
1: The one I mentioned is in terms of the methodological aspect of it. But we've also encountered technical issues with using the platform because um, right at the onset of the study, the platform was already developed and it was just supposed to be implemented in each of the countries. But in terms of how people engage or use the mobile devices, it wasn't really accounted for. In the case of the Philippines, our mobile providers, it's not really equipped to cover multimedia messages you can't really use your mobile numbers to send in multimedia contents if you want to be more interactive in terms of communicating with your peers or with anyone else we mostly use like apps social media apps the dedicated platform was limited to that it assumed that okay just use this number where you can send in your text and if you want to send in photos audio videos or multimedia content you will use this number but then Most of our respondents are living in poor communities, poor households, so they only possess simplistic devices, which is only just capable of sending in text. We've been limited to that aspect of multimedia contents, but then some of the respondents would say, can I send you an audio message through Facebook in terms of their preferences and how they wanted to communicate and in terms of the technicality of it? We have to link communication with Facebook through the dedicated platform because everything should be coming in, in the, into the dedicated platform because it's supposed to place the data. Thank you so much for sharing that. How are you enjoying
0: the conference? Have you got any takeaway messages you'd like to share?
1: This is actually my first time to attend it in person, so it's quite an experience to be able to meet other people, talk to them, and talk everything about health systems research. And It's really a good way to connect with people and find people who have the same interests as you. So, yeah, it's quite an experience and it's a memorable one. Thank
0: you so much. Well, enjoy the rest of the conference and bye for now. Thank you, Kim. We are here at the Health Systems Research Symposium, day four, Connecting Citizens to Science, and I am here with Maria. Maria came to me and she was talking to me about something called verbal autopsy, which I was very interested in. It's actually not participatory so much, but she has turned that method around in the data to make it participatory. So we're going to hear a little bit more about that.
2: Maria, thank you for joining us. Tell us about yourself and the project. Thank you very much. Buenas tardes. My name is Maria Amerbe. I'm based in South Africa, and I'm a co-investigator in the VAPOR project. So VAPA stands for Verbal Autopsy with Participatory Action Research. Our project is based in Mpumalanga province the northeastern corner of South Africa, and we are based at Health and Social Demographic Surveillance Site in Agent Court, that is a, a unit of the MRC WITS, University of witwaters in a rural setting.
0: Great, thank you very much. So, verbal autopsy, tell us what this is.
2: So, verbal autopsy is a method applied specifically in contexts where you may not have data available on births and deaths. Verbal autopsy is collected. In our context, at the M.R. Schiewitz agent court unit through their field workers, it is a standardized set of questions that is used after a death occurred in a family. In this setting, it is collected routinely. And from those questions, through, of course, algorithms and um, artificial intelligence and all of that, standardised um, analysis through the inter of the WHO. That data is then analysed and gives us a probable cause of death. That allows us then to have information that can augment what we have available from the health system because our health system information, specifically in South Africa, and probably the same in many other settings, is only based on what occurs in a health facility. So with the verbal autopsy, we are able to have information on deaths that occur outside of the facilities as well. In our program, we've also developed it further in what we refer to as COMCATs, and those are referring to the circumstances of mortality categories. That's specifically looking at in the days prior to death, specific circumstances that may have attributed to the death, for example, not recognizing the severity of the condition, not being able to call for help, not having transport to access help. That also brings the circumstances around the death into the picture and allows us to have a closer look at what could be done to prevent those mortalities. That's really
0: interesting. So when we were talking, you were saying that this data is accessible for you and that you use that data to engage communities in some sort of priority setting.
2: Tell us a bit more about that. So that is the PAR part of VAPAR, the Participatory Action Research. So what we intend to do is we intend to bring the community voice forward into the health system. We engage with local communities in the rural setting in um, Asian Court area in Pumalanga. And we work with them through a a series of workshops where we use specific participatory methods and tools to identify priorities from the community side. They can nominate specific topics and then through a process of ranking, the priority topic is then applied. We then apply the data, the very quantitative information from verbal autopsy in terms of The mortalities to illustrate the extent of the problem that the community have identified. So let's say, for example, they identify HIV mortality to be a problem or TB mortality. We are then able to use the quantitative data not only from the health system, for example, on number of people receiving treatment or number of people HIV positive or new incidents, but we can also use our VA verbal autopsy data to illustrate the extent of the problem that the community has identified. So that assists us to have two sides of it. So what the community regards as a priority, demonstrating it with hard data to show what the extent is. How do you share that data with communities in a way that's useful for them? We again use different participatory methods and it is always in a participatory settings. So we have a series of workshops where we would then sit down with them, share the data in different formats. Of course, we would develop research briefs. We have it translated in the local languages and our workshops are always facilitated by a person fluent in the local language. We then engage collectively with the community members and their representatives along with house system stakeholders. We put them in one room using um, participatory methods and then plan together specific actions on an action agenda and action plans to address these priorities. In that way, we are bringing the community priority to the health system, putting the health system and community into the same room and planning together what can be done to solve it. I think part of the magic of that process, it's not us and them, it immediately becomes only us. Because when we plan together and we have different activities, even the community realize that they have a role to play. In terms of health-seeking behavior or whatever the case may be, that is strongly built on trust. The first few sessions is mostly around ensuring that there's common understanding and trust. And we have specific, call them ground rules, to ensure that um, we have a balance of power and that we don't have dominance in the room. That takes skilled facilitation to ensure that the community and the health system are equal when we engage with one another.
0: That's really useful. Do you ever have the community members
2: help in that facilitation and managing that power? That's absolutely what has happened. Further along in our process or in our cycles, we started working very directly with our community health workers. And we have now implemented a training program where they undergo training in the participatory methods. They themselves are then facilitating sessions. It's wonderful to see not only their personal development, their their confidence, but also how Their uh, managers or, shall I say, superiors in the health system, if we want to think hierarchical, actually value them having a voice and having the confidence to stand up and have a say. It is really like a magic to see them grow and develop and being able to facilitate. Now we are planning as a next step to roll out this training of trainers that these community health workers will now be training other community health workers to apply the participatory methods in their daily work with regards to community engagement and mobilization.
0: You've really built in that sustainability of the project, which is great to hear. I guess I have a million questions here, but uh, we're running out of time. So tell us how the conference has been for you and any take home messages um, that you might take back to your project.
2: Well, the conference has been amazing. Um, Of course, it took a little bit of adjustment. I think it's altitude and time zones and all of that. But after the first day or two, you get over that and you really apply your mind. I think the main thing I've probably learned, which may sound like a bit of a cliche, but the more we're different, the more we are the same. We are from so many different regions and so many different countries. But in the end, we have the same problem. I was using the example earlier where, you know, when COVID was at its height and everybody said we're in the same storm. And then you would say, but you have a yacht and I have a canoe. It's not the same storm. I'm starting to see our health systems the same. If you may be in a high-income country or a low-income country, health systems are health systems. So some may have yachts and some may have canoes, but it doesn't actually erase the fact that we all still need to grow and develop and um, work on that. I think that's my take-home message. I think that's an amazing take-home message. Thank you so much for uh, connecting with us. It's been a pleasure to
0: have you and enjoy the rest of the conference. Bye for now. Thank you. Absolute privilege to take part in your
3: program. Thank you. Hello, it's the final day of the HSR conference in Bogota and I'm here with emerging voice participant Vivek D'Souza. He's going to be telling us about his work based in India, also some reflections on the conference and generally about his plans for engaging with communities. So Vivek, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Please, can you tell us a bit about your current role and area of study?
4: Thanks a lot, Beatrice, for this wonderful opportunity. My name is Vivek D'Souza and I'm a research officer at the Institute of Public Health in Bangalore, India. My current research focuses on understanding the implementation of tobacco control policies Currently in India we have a national tobacco control law which is the Cigarettes and Other Tobacco Products Act and we also have a program which is the National Tobacco Control Program the NTCP our major focus is on understanding how the law and the program are implemented in different states we use a realist evaluation framework for this one of the questions that we're trying to answer is that why despite having a central law and a policy why is implementation different in different states India is a huge country with 28 states and union territories. Given that we have different contextual factors, for instance, the language is different, state jurisdictions are different, political ideologies are different, the geography of India is so diverse, uh, the culture in India is so diverse. And all of these have a role to play in either consuming or not consuming tobacco. We are trying to understand why implementation is better. Has it progressed? Has it not progressed? Or has it, you know, worsened? We are studying three states in India. Our major focus, our entry point to understanding implementation is to engage with our stakeholders, primarily the policymakers at the national, state level, as well as the city level, as well as implementers across sectors, those who may not necessarily be part of the health ministry or department, but also sectors concerning commerce or agriculture. We have stakeholders that we've engaged with coming from the civil society groups. We have media consultancy and media organisations that have a role to play in tobacco control awareness. We are engaging with all of these stakeholders to understand what are their perspectives, what are the challenges that they feel or that they face while implementing certain programmes and policies in their own state. Uh, So this is a little bit about my study.
3: Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's really, really interesting to hear what a broad range of stakeholders you're engaging with in this study. I was wondering, as the theme of this podcast is about community engagement, can you tell us um, if and how you're engaging with communities, if you plan to, and your thoughts around that and how it would function in your project?
4: While the current focus of our project is on understanding implementation, our primary stakeholder community is the high-level stakeholders or the bureaucrats, senior-level bureaucrats at the national, state, and city level. At the same time, we are also trying to bring in community voices to understand how and why, for instance, tobacco use is a problem that they face in communities. During the course of our project, which is a five-year project, we organized a series of webinars, which was called Inside Implementation, basically to understand the challenges and the barriers and the facilitators that implementers face while implementing tobacco control laws. What we did is that we created a platform or a space online that brought not only stakeholders from the government, but also from civil society and also from community groups. For instance, we've had a cancer survivor sharing their experience of how tobacco was a huge problem for them and how they've had an operation which totally changed their life and the way they go about acting with people and socializing with people. There's a lot of stigma also attached to communities, especially to the individuals that consume tobacco within and outside their families. We've also in our webinars have brought speakers who have undergone operations ...cancer operations or any kind of major surgeries that were a result of tobacco use. They have shared their experience of how even though they were not primary consumers of tobacco... ...secondhand smoke or secondhand consumption also harms people around user. In this way, we are trying to bring in community voices on the online platform... ...in order to share their experiences, their challenges... ...and also to bridge the gap between research and practice... While on one hand, there is a lot of ample research saying there is lack of knowledge. On the ground, we've seen that despite having knowledge, people still consume tobacco in certain states. Through this study, we're also trying to understand how and why people still consume tobacco. The socio-cultural, behavioral and individual change factors that still persist individuals to consume the product. That is something that through community engagement, we are trying to study and bring the voices and sort of move forward in, in tobacco control policy.
3: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Inside Implementation webinars sound like a really great platform. Exactly, as you say, for bringing in those community voices. Really interesting to hear about. To round up this discussion, I just wanted to ask, do you have any reflections or take-home messages from this week at the conference that you'd like to share with our listeners?
4: One of the key themes that I was really interested was on the political factors that affect health systems. This is something that is a constant challenge in India. We have a three-tier health system, we have different levels of government, and we have different stakes when it comes to tobacco. There are sectors or departments that are for tobacco because of commercial interests, because of the revenue that they generate. Also, there are sectors that are against tobacco because it's a public health issue, it's a public health harm, and also an ecological or environmental harm. When it comes to politics in health systems and power, some of the sessions on power, on privilege, on how it impacts health systems and intersectoral coordination was something from the conference I took.
3: Great. Thank you so much. I think the political thread has really run through so much of the conference, so
4: I completely agree. One of the things that I was also interested was on the political or the commercial determinants of health. In tobacco, you have the role of the tobacco industry, which is a really strong force, not only in convincing users to consume their product, but also in convincing governments with governments to weaken or to delay tobacco control implementation. I think the conference really helped me to understand that these kind of systems are very complex. And in order to really discuss and address health equity, we also have to address the commercial determinants of health uh, and how major corporations play a huge role in policy formulation and implementation.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you very much for bringing in those aspects on the political and commercial determinants, because we haven't really had that discussed on the podcast yet. So really interesting. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us and have safe travels back home.
4: Thank you so much. I'm really glad and honoured. If anybody is interested in the work that we do on tobacco control, on health policy and implementation, you can definitely uh, reach out to us at iphindia.org. That's our website. We are on LinkedIn and on Twitter as well. We are a small Bangalore-based organization, but we work on different uh, aspects of health. We have four verticals or clusters. We have the cluster on chronic condition and public policy where we focus on chronic diseases and sort of the determinants. Tobacco control is one of them. We have a health services cluster. We have a health equity cluster that works on projects like tribal health and trying to build comprehensive primary healthcare in the most far-off regions. In India and we have a universal health coverage and financing cluster. So we work on different aspects of health both from a policy implementation and advocacy perspective.
3: Great we'll put your contact details in the post as well. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us.
4: Thanks a lot. Connecting
0: Citizens to Science is here at Health Systems Global Conference and I'm here with Cara Hansen and we met in the hall. And she was talking to me about engaging communities in finance. And we haven't had that perspective yet. So I'm very interested to know how can communities get involved in financial decisions and shape them? I'm Kara Hansen. I'm Professor of Health System Economics at the London School
5: of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I recently chaired the Lancet Global Health Commission on Financing Primary Healthcare. When we were shaping the commission, we were starting on the one hand with you know, the case for primary health care and how we want primary healthcare to be people-centered. Yet the lens on that we were taking was financing arrangements. And we ended up making the argument that in order to have people-centered PHC, you need people-centered financing arrangements as well. So what do we mean by that? Health financing geeks tend to think about health financing functions. We're interested in what's called revenue mobilization, so where the money comes from how it's pooled, so how it's brought together to be able to share risk across people who are sick and people who are well, and then what we call purchasing, which is the way that the money moves from those pools towards providers to enable them to respond to provide services. We looked at each one of those financing functions and said, well, what does it mean to put people at the center? I'm going to talk about each one, if that's okay. So the first one is is revenue generation. What do we mean by people-centered revenue generation? What we mean is tax. <laughs> so People pay, <laughs> nice. Um, but that's really important because that means because tax systems are usually structures that people pay in proportion to their capacity to pay. Taxation is a really fair way of collecting revenue. It's fairer, for example, than out-of-pocket payments, which is the way that many countries have a, a predominance of out-of-pocket payments. People should be involved in providing the money. And, that, and there's lots of thoughts about how to increase the tax takes or how governments can do a better job at mobilizing revenue and collecting tax revenue. The second idea then is about pooling arrangements, this idea of bringing money together so you enable these cross-subsidies. The nice thing about pooling arrangements is they should be able to cover everyone and that those pooling arrangements should really cover primary health care first. Some countries have taken a different approach, which is to use insurance or pooling-based arrangements to cover hospital care first. But actually, that leaves people really exposed to out-of-pocket payments for the kind of the the constant small amounts of money that they spend on health care, particularly a problem for people who have chronic conditions. We know from evidence from some places that chronic conditions can really impoverish people even though they're mostly seeking care in ambulatory settings that's revenue generation and then pooling the next is. How do you get money allocated to primary health care and to providers? We also think that people should be at the center of allocation arrangements. We're advocating for either a capitation-based or a per capita-based allocation mechanism that gets money from those central pools out to the relevant geographic units. Why per capita? That starts with an equal amount per person, right? You start with that equal amount. And that money then needs to be protected all the way until it reaches those primary health care providers. The last bit of this is how providers are paid. And we make a strong case in the commission report for having capitation payment be at the heart of provider payment arrangements. Again, the reasons for this are about people. So you start with an equal amount per person that goes to a provider. You can adjust that based on different needs. So in a more sophisticated capitation-based system, you can enable people who are more likely to have higher health costs to have a higher payment attached to them. It also gives you, gives providers an incentive to do promotion and prevention. The last thing is it also gives them a really reliable and stable income source, which allows them to plan better for how they're going to be able to serve the populations that are either registered with them or sit in their catchment area.
0: I think health workers are also community members. And quite often I've heard throughout the conference, the payment doesn't reach them or they don't get paid on time and that affects the care for individuals. Do you have a comment on that?
5: Oh, very much so. Because there's two things. One is whether their salaries are paid, which is a serious issue in many places. And a lot of that comes down not so much to budgets, but to public financial management arrangements that involve late releases of budgets and poor budget execution. So absolutely, that's a massive problem. But also, health workers are trying to work in settings where they need resources to do what they're going to do. So it's how they're paid their salaries, but also whether they are able to respond to the very small needs for keeping their facilities going, buying soap, buying, you know, minor materials to keep their places tidy. That money really needs to get there. And the money often doesn't. It gets, it gets kind of filtered off or it never gets there in the first place
0: because it gets siphoned off towards hospital care. Making
5: sure that money reaches those facilities is terribly
0: important. In terms of communities being involved in those financial decisions, which are quite complex, how do you see that happening? How can communities be involved in dialogue in financial issues that not all of us um, really understand very well? So
5: one important role for communities in the system is to hold the system accountable, right? If they're provided with the information about which resources should be reaching the facility then they're in a position to complain if it doesn't. And there's some really interesting experiments around with community-based accountability systems that enable communities, either as citizens or as management committees, to hold the system to account for making sure the money that is supposed to get there, the money that's budgeted for them, actually reaches them.
0: That's the accountability side. Mm -hmm. So that's once the finances have reached the health system and the frontline health workers that we're talking about, But what about the decisions before that's decided? Can they be involved in in the beginning of those discussions? So sometimes those are called like short route and long route to accountability
5: things, right? The short route would be through having things like influence through social movements and political movements to try to influence those political processes. The other is to elect politicians who are motivated and committed to increasing health services and particularly to increasing access to PHC. Both those routes are important.
0: Thank you very much. Those are terms that are really useful to know. So finally, how is the conference? Have you learned anything that's really been quite surprising? And what advice would you have for others that really want to put people at the center of financing for health systems?
5: Well, two separate questions. Conference is great. One of the things I like about coming to conferences is making myself go to things that I don't know anything about. I've just been to a session about health systems that are resilient to climate change. And it's a whole area that's really new to me, but I know it's really important. I really enjoyed that. There were some great presentations. Keeping people at the center of PHC, we think a lot about doing that through service delivery arrangements and through co-production of novel interventions. But I think it's useful to also think about keeping people at the center of the financing arrangements so that the money that's needed to deliver
0: those services can be there at the time it's needed. There we go. Co-production and finance. First conversation in our series about that. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the conference and bye for now. Bye-bye. Well, the end of that episode brings us to the end of our adventures at the Global Symposium for Health Systems Research. In summary, we are feeling positive and energized as it's clear that the shift towards prioritizing communities in research and policy is happening. Many sessions at the symposium discuss the importance of considering power politics and participation in health systems research. We were pleasantly surprised to hear about the plethora of tools that have been developed to better engage people in decision-making spaces. It's now time to implement these tools and test them to see if they really do work in practice. Some of the areas that were identified through our conversations were the need to work with the private sector as part of our community engagement strategies. And that digital tools and platforms are useful resources for creative communication and connection across and within populations. We also noted the growth of non-communicable diseases and mental health as key areas of interest for health systems in the future. Finally, nearly every conversation we had in the hall and during the different sessions we attended discussed the importance of trust and regaining trust of communities and people in research and science. This has been weakened in recent years and is a priority. Building trust takes time, trust is fragile, and it should never be neglected in our endeavors to ensure people are at the center of all our work. Until the next Global Symposium of Health Systems Research, LSTM and this podcast wishes you luck in your efforts to connect with citizens. As always, please like, rate, and subscribe so we can continue to bring you evidence and practices that support community engagement in your research. Thank you for listening.